Welcome to NTD News Today. I'm Kevin Hogan. Let's take a look at our top stories. The wait is on. Quick clarity with election results has been elusive in some places. States like Nevada and Arizona are still busy counting up votes in those critical elections. Mail-in ballots were a deciding factor in the Senate race in Pennsylvania. We have more on how many mail-in votes and how many in-person votes the two candidates got. President Biden cheering his party's wins in the midterms as the red wave turned out pink. What could slim majorities in Congress mean for the next two years? Here's something out of a spy novel. Members of one party funding what it views as the most extreme candidates of another party. That's what happened in this year's Republican primaries. Generation Z made a big turnout for Democrats in this year's midterms. We break down the numbers and get some analysis on why this is the case. Congresswoman Lauren Boebert and Democratic opponent Adam Frisch are still locked in a tight race. Votes continue to come in from the U.S. House District in Colorado. They both have about 50% of the vote, with Frisch up by just 64 votes. That's with an estimated 94% of votes in. Boebert was elected in 2020. Until recently, she owned a gun-themed restaurant in the town of Rifle, Colorado. In politics, she is known for her alliance with the politics of former President Trump. She supports conservative positions on local issues. She has also supported allegations of fraud in the 2020 election. Frisch is a former councilman from the resort town of Aspen. He has tried to present himself as a moderate and has downplayed his Democratic Party affiliation. He has also referred to himself as a conservative. He views Trump-style politics as divisive. The tight race would trigger the recount if a difference in votes comes to half a percentage point or less. And it could be another week before Nevada finishes counting its ballots. The governorship, a U.S. Senate race, and three congressional seats remain uncalled. And today's Jeremy Sandberg has more on the ballot counting conundrum in the Silver State. Tens of thousands of mail-in ballots still need to be counted from Washoe and Clark counties. These counties make up 90% of the vote in Nevada. Clark County Registrar of Voters Joe Gloria says nearly 15,000 mail-in ballots were received Monday and Tuesday. They started counting them Wednesday. The USPS pickup for today was over 12,700 ballots. Gloria says the close to 13,000 mail-in ballots received Wednesday won't be counted until at least Thursday. The registrar says mail-in ballots will be counted as long as they are received before November 12th and postmarked by Election Day, and that the process of curing ballots with unclear signatures and verifying provisional ballots will continue into next week. Curing can occur if the signature on the ballot envelope doesn't appear to match the voter's signature on file. Voters have until the close of business on Monday to fix it. The mail will continue to process every day, and the cure processing takes place every day as well. Gloria also says county election officials are working on processing, in his words, a considerable amount of drop boxes received that held a considerable amount of ballots from Tuesday. Republican U.S. Senate candidate Adam Laxalt is leading in a tight contest with incumbent Democratic Senator Catherine Cortez Masto. Right now, Laxalt is coming in with just over 49% of the vote. Cortez Masto is right behind him with just under 48%. An estimated 90% of the votes have been counted so far. Laxalt asked supporters to be patient and says he's confident of a win. Unfortunately, we're in for a long night and maybe even a few days into this week as all the votes are tabulated. But we're confident that the numbers are there 
and we're gonna win this race. We're gonna take back Nevada and take back America. Thank you all. Democrat Governor Steve Sisolak is also in a tight race for re-election against Republican challenger Joe Lombardo. We need some patience. We need some patience because we don't know the answers yet, and we will know in the next couple of days. That's what they're telling us. Lombardo is currently in the lead with close to 50% of the vote. Sisolak had just over 46%. Everybody keep paying attention to the polls as they come in, and keep your fingers crossed, keep supporting, keep saying your prayers and we're going to be successful, and then we're all going to get back together again and have a real party, all right? Three House seats are hanging in limbo. Nevada state law requires officials to finish counting and submit a report to the Secretary of State's office by November 17th. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. Hundreds of thousands of votes still remained uncounted in Maricopa County yesterday. Election officials in Arizona's most populous county say it could take until at least Friday to tally all votes. Meanwhile, several instances of voting day technical malfunctions have been reported. NTD's Daniel Monahan has more. The race for governor and U.S. Senate remained uncalled on Wednesday with about 70 percent of votes tallied. Republican Carrie Lake called the people running the show in Arizona incompetent. Two minutes in, two minutes into voting, we had people being told, well, you're going to have to put your little ballot over here into another box, guys. Her Democratic opponent, Katie Hobbs, who as Secretary of State also oversees the elections, had a different message for her supporters. I have every confidence that the counties administering this election conducted free and fair, conducted a free and fair election, and their results will be accurate. But they will take time. Margins between Democrats and Republicans narrowed considerably Wednesday in key Arizona races. Democrats maintained small but dwindling leads in contests for the U.S. Senate, Governor and Secretary of State. Meanwhile, Republicans were optimistic that the late-counted ballots would break heavily in their favor, as they did in 2020. Election officials assured voters that every ballot would be counted. This after malfunctions at about one-quarter of the polling places across Arizona's most populous county slowed down voting. The snag on Tuesday fueled worries about the integrity of the vote in the tightly contested state. But how do you get fair and free elections? You have to fight and win to make them fair and free. About 17,000 ballots in Maricopa County, or approximately 7% of the 275,000 dropped off Tuesday, were affected. The latest data shows Lake trailing Hobbs by about 13,000 votes, with about 75% of ballots counted. In the Senate, Democrat Mark Kelly leads Republican challenger Blake Masters by around five points. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. And in Pennsylvania, a person who has already passed away is re-elected state lawmaker. Tony DeLuca, a Democrat, died at age 85 on October 9th. He represented a district in Allegheny County for 39 years. The timing of his death was too late for election officials to change the ballots. On Tuesday, he received more than 85% of the vote. His opponent, a Green Party candidate, received roughly 14% of the vote. A special election will be held soon. Pennsylvania House Democrats said on Twitter, quote, We are proud to see the voters to continue to show their confidence in him and his commitment to democratic values by re-electing him posthumously. 
In several of the most crucial races on election night, mail-in ballots played an important factor and catapulted Democratic candidates to victories. One example is Pennsylvania Democratic candidate for U.S. Senate John Fetterman. In the Senate race between Democrat John Fetterman and Republican Dr. Mehmet Oz, and other races as well, mail-in ballots acted as a breaker against the so-called red wave. Based on unofficial tallies available as of November 10th, Oz drew roughly half a million more in-person voters to the polls on election day than Fetterman did. But that margin wasn't enough. Fetterman got over 915,000 mail-in ballots. That's quadruple what Oz got in that column. The result is 690,000 more mail-in ballots in Fetterman's favor. According to the U.S. Elections Project, Pennsylvania sent out 1.4 million mail-in ballots, around half of them, or roughly 635,000, were sent out before the debate between Fetterman and Oz on October 25th. Fetterman struggled in the debate due to a stroke in May, and his performance caused many to question his ability to serve in the Senate. Election rules in Pennsylvania vary by county, but some places allow voters to submit absentee ballots and mail-ins up to 50 days prior to an election. Jacob Nyheisel, professor of political science at the University of Buffalo, told the Epoch Times the pros and cons of mail-in voting. He said you want your supporters to use anything they can. That's election day voting, early voting, absentee, whatever tool is most effective for you. But he also pointed to the pitfalls. For example, what happens if new information comes in that might have changed your mind? President Biden is celebrating his party's midterm wins. He hailed Tuesday as a good day for democracy and for America. NTD's Jessica Beatty has more. President Biden Wednesday commented on how Republicans didn't do as well in the midterms as some polls had suggested. While the press and the pundits are predicting a giant red wave, uh, it didn't happen. The GOP may be closing in on a slim majority in the House. The Senate is too close to call. In the end, it might be harder for Democrats to pass legislation. Biden said he's ready to work with a Republican-controlled Congress. Regardless of what the final tally in these elections show, and there's still some counting going on, I'm prepared to work with my Republican colleagues. The American people have made clear, I think, that they expect Republicans to be prepared to work with me as well. But once questions started, Biden said he would do nothing differently moving forward. So what are the ramifications of the red wave turning out pink? Narrow congressional majorities can favor more moderate viewpoints. Political professor Nathaniel Burkhead from Kansas State University says the modest gains for Republicans could be seen as a win for Biden. I think that uh, Biden will look at this result and say, hey, I, we did OK, I should run again. Biden Wednesday said he needs to talk to his family before deciding to run again in 2024. He said an announcement would probably come early next year. Professor Burkhead says abortion may have boosted voter turnout for Democrats after the Supreme Court handed the issue back to the states. I think you can't overstate the impact of abortion. I think that's the first thing for the Democrats, is that uh, voters, the voters really are animated by those issues. Burkhead also commented on Florida Governor Ron DeSantis' big win Tuesday. He says the DeSantis-Trump dynamic will be one to watch in 2024. I think that DeSantis has not positioned himself yet to be the, uh, to be the sort of the, the heir apparent to the Trump wave. Um, but I think that we should expect to see him position himself just that way coming forward. Jessica Beatty, NTD News.
House Speaker Nancy Pelosi, will she stick around or is she likely to retire? Different experts have different opinions, especially after the midterms and the attack on her husband. Multiple Democratic sources from the U.S. House reportedly told Fox News that Nancy Pelosi wasn't ready to retire yet. They say that's even more so after the attack on her husband, which some reportedly said they think it motivated her even more to stay. Pelosi told CNN that the attack on her husband will affect her decision about her political future. A senior fellow at the R Street Institute told Fox News members of Congress and especially members of Congress in the upper echelons are almost a different breed of people. In that scenario, an attack on one's spouse could steal your nerve and say, you know what, I'm going to show them, I'm going to stick around. A House Democratic aide told the outlet that there are multiple other candidates who appear to be preparing for a bid for the leadership. Walner reportedly said it might be hard for Pelosi to win leadership if she chooses to try. A former advisor to former President Bill Clinton told Fox that he thinks whether Pelosi stays or not depends on whether Democrats win the House. If the Dems lose the House, as they are likely to do, I don't think she would stay on in leadership, as that would be a step down. She would then make a graceful exit and celebrate a successful term. Pelosi reportedly left for a climate summit in Egypt on Wednesday without announcing any future plans. A risky Democrat strategy to spend millions of dollars elevating more conservative Republican candidates appears to have paid off. This as Democratic nominees defeated them in several races across the country. NTD's Daniel Monahan has the story. Critics within the Democratic Party warned about ad campaigns backing candidates who echoed former President Donald Trump's claims about the 2020 election. They said it could help elect the people Democrats claimed posed a serious threat to democracy. But supporters of the controversial move saw it differently. They thought boosting these candidates over more moderate Republicans in the primaries would bear fruit. They gambled that it would make their opponents easier to beat on election day. And it appears the plan paid off. All eight Democratic candidates who benefited from the strategy were projected to win their races as of yesterday morning. In New Hampshire, Senator Maggie Hassan easily defeated Republican Don Bolduc. Bolduc was the beneficiary of around $3 million from a Democrat PAC during the Republican primary. Democrats also defended two competitive congressional seats in New Hampshire and picked up one in Michigan. All their candidates held wide leads over Trump-backed Republicans. And Democratic gubernatorial candidates in four states, Pennsylvania, Michigan, Maryland, and Illinois, also dispatched of Republican candidates relatively easily after running ads in the Republican primaries earlier this year. However, Republicans did make gains in swing states and deep blue states. In New York, in the 2018 midterms, Democrat Andrew Cuomo won against the GOP nominee Mark Molinaro by a margin of 24 percent. By contrast, in 2022, incumbent Governor Kathy Hochul, a Democrat, was ahead 53% to Republican challenger Lee Zeldin with 47%. Meanwhile, in Florida in 2018, Republican Governor Ron DeSantis won against Democrat Andrew Gillum by 0.4%. In the 2022 midterms, with 99% reporting, DeSantis was ahead with 60% compared to Democrat challenger Charlie Crist's 40%. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. Now we zoom in on the impact young voters had on the midterm election. President Biden hailed this age group, attributing some of their success to them. And others are saying young voters made the difference and stifled what some were expecting to be a red wave. We get some analysis on this demographic from our next guest. 
Joining us now is Barrington Martin II, a former Democratic congressional candidate and host of the Barrington Report. Great speaking with you today, Barrington. Glad to be here. The Center for Information and Research on Civic Learning and Engagement at Tufts, or CIRCLE, analyzed Edison Research National Election Poll, Exit Poll. It found that about two-thirds of young voters went with Democratic candidates, while only about a third voted Republican. Can you explain why this is? Well, absolutely. Well, for the last few years, um, the left, specifically Democrats, um, they rule culture. They run media. They run music. They run movies. I've actually seen with many type of Democratic candidates, specifically Stacey Abrams here in Georgia, um, you had a lot of movie stars come out and support for her, even though they don't live um, in Georgia. So that goes to show that um, Democrats or the left specifically have been um, ruling the culture and in turns, um, the younger generation are deeply influenced by um, the culture and so this is why we see the, the democratic turnout um, from a younger generation specifically Gen Z. So Barrington you mentioned culture music how is it that the Democrats are able to control the culture as you're saying? Well, just to be honest and to be very frank, um, conservatism just isn't sexy it's uncool. Um, a lot of conservatives love to um, you know delve into the statistics and the facts and sure that this is important but what we see within the discourse in our society now is that the left have totally removed the facts and they continue placing the emphasis on feelings and so if you can tell narratives and tell stories or just any type of rhetoric that allows people to feel what ends up happening is you're going to persuade them to whatever ideology that you may have and this is what the, the left has done perfectly and it seems that the the, the gop or the right will not get out of their own way and understand that they have to fight fire with fire or better fight fire with war. That is interesting how you mentioned facts versus feelings. And can you explain the relationship between things like student loan forgiveness and what's been called a bitter dose of reality when young people first enter the workforce and how this age group casts their ballots? Absolutely. So basically the left has influenced the younger generation to believe in these pie in the sky type ideologies that everyone's going to win, everyone's equal, and that everything is going to be okay. And that, that no matter what mistakes you make, it's going to be all right because daddy government is going to be there to save you. And that's not the case at all. So um, you see the left make these promises and make these, these um, total utopian type ideals to to the younger generation and in turn as they get older that they see that these were all lies meant to influence them for their vote and i think that we have to get past um this notion of wanting to feel good and just respect the facts for what they are and move accordingly towards those things and barrington what advice do you have to young voters or voters more broadly Honestly, I think that you, you have to understand that the world is hard. I think you have to understand that if you want to be free or you truly want to live a lifestyle of freedom, that understand that failure is, is going to happen. However, if you remain persistent and you remain true to your values and um, true to your, your core laurels, everything will be fine. And just um, don't get so far deep into ideology. Get into the facts and get into the reality of the real world that you exist in. Very good analysis. Barrington Martin II, host of the Barrington Report. It was a pleasure speaking with you today. Thank you so much. You have a great day, sir. Coming up, South Carolina lawmakers can't agree on an abortion ban. The state's House and Senate want different degrees of restriction, and the legislative term is about to end. And Tropical Storm Nicole is wrecking travel plans. Hundreds of flights were canceled. The storm made landfall in Florida this morning. Get the details in just a minute here on NTD News.
Tropical storm Nicole is causing havoc with travel plans. More than 1,200 flights in the U.S. were scrapped today, according to the FlightAware tracking site. This comes after more than 900 flights were canceled Wednesday, with the most planes being grounded at Orlando International Airport. Thursday's cancellations came after Nicole made landfall in Florida near Vero Beach as a Category 1 hurricane. Its winds were 75 miles per hour at the time. However, Nicole has since weakened back down to a tropical storm status. People heading to the airport over the next day or so should keep close watch on their airlines to see if they will need to adjust their plans. And speaking of extreme weather, NASA has sent a new storm monitoring satellite into space. The launch was a joint mission with the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. An Atlas V rocket carried the new weather satellite into orbit. It lifted off from the Vandenberg Space Force Base in California and will now circle the Earth. It's part of a system of interconnected satellites focused on weather forecasting and climate monitoring. Mission officials said it's the latest technology and so it will improve the precision of data from the atmosphere, oceans and land. The launch rocket was also equipped with a data recorder and an aeroshell. That's a device used to protect heavy spacecraft descending into the atmosphere. It hit the ocean east of Hawaii and was recovered by boat. In other news, South Carolina lawmakers can't agree on measures to prevent abortions. The state's House and Senate want a new ban on abortions, but each to different degrees. I announced this morning that while I did not think that the Senate had the votes to adopt a conference report, that we would certainly be willing to come back together, reconvene the conference committee to try to come up with something else. Let's keep talking. Let's see if we can come up with an idea. Maybe we can get there. Um, I made that announcement during the conference committee this morning. So the fact that we reconvened 35 minutes ago was no surprise to anybody. The House members just decided to go home. After a dozen meetings and sessions over the summer and fall, South Carolina still hasn't passed a stronger abortion law. Senators rejected a House-backed proposal, and House members didn't return for another meeting to work out a compromise. A number of Republicans called for South Carolina to ban almost all abortions after the U.S. Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade. But the House wants a near-total abortion ban, and the Senate wants to tweak the current law to create a ban after the first six weeks of pregnancy. The state's General Assembly session ends Sunday. That means everything resets and all bills must start from the beginning of the legislative process in January. A U.S. Navy nuclear engineer and his wife have learned their fate. That's after trying to sell information about nuclear-powered warships. The couple pleaded guilty to the charge of conspiring to sell classified information to a foreign country. 44-year-old Jonathan Toby of Annapolis, Maryland, was sentenced to more than 19 years in prison. His wife, Diana Toby, got more than 21 years. Prosecutors said the couple went to great lengths to hide encrypted SD cards at dead drop locations. They say the couple tucked one into a saran-wrapped peanut butter sandwich. Others were hidden inside a pack of gum and a sealed Band-Aid wrapper. The couple thought they were dealing with agents of a foreign government and that they would get thousands of dollars in cryptocurrency in exchange for the classified information. But they were actually dealing with undercover FBI agents.
In Florida, a gun was found inside a raw chicken at an airport security checkpoint. Here's some photos that TSA officials posted on Instagram this week. The gun was discovered hidden inside the raw chicken at the Fort Lauderdale Hollywood International Airport. The passenger was reportedly headed to Haiti. A record number of guns have been discovered at Florida airport checkpoints this year, more than 700 so far. The fine for getting caught with a gun at an airport checkpoint can be costly, even if the passenger is not arrested. TSA says civil penalties can reach nearly $14,000. The agency says firearms must be packed in checked luggage and outlines specific rules related to guns and ammunition on its website. A freight railroad strike has been avoided, again, at least for now. The third largest railroad union in the U.S. was prepared to strike as soon as November 20th. A strike by any rail union would shut down America's major freight railroads. That's because all other rail unions would honor the picket lines. But for all four major railroad unions they announced yesterday, they've agreed to coordinate the date on which they could potentially strike, and that would be early December. Two unions rejected the tentative agreements reached with the railroads in September, mostly over the lack of paid sick time in the contracts. 30% of America's freight moves by rail, so a shutdown could cause more economic problems. Congress could act to avoid a strike, and lawmakers are due to return from recess next week. The U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention is warning about a listeria outbreak linked to deli meat and cheese. The agency is investigating 16 reported listeria cases in six states, California, Illinois, Maryland, Massachusetts, New Jersey, and New York. A pregnant woman lost her baby and another person died. At least 13 others received treatment at hospitals. The agency says most of the sick people reported eating meat or cheese from deli counters where spiced deli meat is often kept in open packages. Investigators are working to identify which specific products and delis are a risk. And some Latin American nations are taking a new approach to prison overcrowding. The area has one of the highest incarceration rates in the world. Lawmakers in Mexico, Ecuador, and Nicaragua are offering early release to thousands of criminals with minor offenses or who are awaiting trial. In Cuba and Venezuela, lawbreakers and regime offenders are not only being released, many are exiled. Consequently, U.S. security analysts and legislators are voicing concerns. With with security forces overwhelmed at America's southern border, some say the door is wide open to those with a criminal past and no incentive to stay home. Illegal immigrant arrests at the U.S. southern border were at a record 2 million for the 2022 fiscal year. And still to come, the German government blocks the sale of two semiconductor chip makers to Chinese investors. The decision was made on national security grounds. And South Korea identifies a North Korean missile that landed near its shores as a Soviet-era projectile. We'll have all that and more for you in just a minute. President Joe Biden is planning a meeting with Chinese leader Xi Jinping. He told reporters that he hopes to set red lines with China and resolve areas of conflict. 
dad bought a home. When you meet with President Xi Jinping of China, will you tell him that you're committed to defending Taiwan militarily? And what are you hoping to get out of this meeting that will make it a success? Are you willing to make any concessions to him? So what I want to do with him when we talk is lay out what, the, what kind of each of our red lines are, understand what he believes to be in the critical national interest of China, what I know to be the critical interest of the United States, and to determine whether or not they conflict with one another. And if they do, how to resolve it and how to work it out. Tensions are rising between the United States and China in recent months. Biden said he would make clear to Xi that U.S. policy toward Taiwan hasn't changed, noting he is unwilling to make any fundamental concessions on the issue. The president said fair trade and China's regional ties will also be on the table. The meeting will align with the Group of 20 summit next Tuesday in Bali, Indonesia. It will be the first in-person meeting since Biden became president in January 2021, and it comes just weeks after Xi reaffirmed his power within the Chinese Communist Party. He entered his third five-year term as leader during the party's National Congress last month. The German government on Wednesday blocked the sale of two chip makers to Chinese investors over security concerns. It's trying to balance a push from European countries to access the Chinese market with reducing Germany's trade reliance on China. The German government on Wednesday blocked Chinese investment in two domestic semiconductor producers. The moves had raised concerns over national security and the flow of sensitive know-how to Beijing. Speaking to reporters after the decision, Economy Minister Robert Habeck said Germany remains open to investments, including from outside the EU, but it is not naive about it. China is and should remain a trading partner, but we must not be naive and have to realize when trade and market interests are used for political power and possibly used against the interests of the Federal Republic of Germany so that we protect our own interests. The German government said it had vetoed the takeover of the chip factory of the Dortmund-based company Elmos by a Swedish company that is a subsidiary of Chinese group Sai Microelectronics. German media reported Berlin also blocked investment in Bavaria-based ERS Electronic. Habeck said it's important to realize that China was making a deliberate strategic approach to gain control of semiconductor and microchip manufacturing. China's Made in China 2025 initiative aims to build up a domestic chip industry and reduce reliance on Western technology. The decisions by the government of Chancellor Olaf Scholz comes at a time of heightened sensitivity around relations between Berlin and Beijing. The government is currently reviewing its policy towards China, especially in the wake of Russia's invasion of Ukraine, which exposed Germany's heavy dependence on Russian gas. Prior to his trip to China last week, Schultz pushed through a decision to allow China to buy a minority stake in a terminal in Germany's largest port, despite opposition from within his coalition. North Korea fired at least one ballistic missile into the sea on Wednesday, and South Korea said it identified debris from an earlier launch as part of a Soviet-era SA-5 surface-to-air missile. South Korea said it had identified debris from a North Korean missile launch as part of a Soviet-era projectile on Wednesday. That has North Korea launched at least one ballistic missile into the sea. 
Analysis by neighbouring South Korea said the debris, which it believes came from a launch last week, belonged to an SA-5 anti-aircraft missile, citing its appearance and features. It was the first time a North Korean ballistic missile had landed near South Korean waters. North Korea said the launch was in protest against joint air drills by South Korea and the United States. Wednesday's launch comes a week after North Korea test-fired multiple missiles, including a possible failed intercontinental ballistic missile. Japan's Coast Guard said the ballistic missile appeared to have fallen into the sea minutes after the launch was reported. Drawing condemnation from Tokyo, Japan's government had lodged a strong protest with North Korea via diplomatic channels through Beijing. South Korean and U.S. officials have said Pyongyang has made technical preparations to test a nuclear device, which is the first time it will have done so since 2017. There's more news between the two neighbors, not about missiles, but puppies. The former South Korean president is giving up a pair of dogs sent by North Korean leader Kim Jong-un. The two white Pungsang dogs were a gift from Kim Jong-un after a 2018 summit. Their current owner is former South Korean President Moon Jae-in. Moon has been raising them since they arrived in South Korea. He also brought the two to his personal residence after his term ended in May. He says he was entrusted to become their legal keeper, and his office has sought financial support, but with no success. Now Moon plans to give up the two dogs, saying the current government doesn't back them. And if you have any news tips or feedback for the show, don't hesitate to email us at news.today at ntd.com. And just ahead, Ukrainian residents living near the front lines of war are struggling to stay warm with unstable energy resources, and a cold winter lies ahead. And chaos in Paris as metro workers go on strike. Most of the subway lines face disruptions, and some of them were completely closed. We'll have all that and more for you in just a minute. Ukrainians in Kyiv are skeptical about Russia's latest move. They question the intention behind Russia's retreat from Kherson. A Russian defense minister ordered his troops to withdraw from Kherson yesterday. They've taken up defensive lines on the opposite bank of the nearby river. An advisor to the Ukrainian president said Russia wanted to turn Kherson into a city of death by mining everything from apartments to sewers. Many echoed his views and anticipate the Russians could shell the city from over the other side of the river. Kherson is the only regional capital seized by President Putin's troops since the war began. The Russian retreat follows weeks of Ukrainian advances towards the city. It's potentially a huge blow to Russia's military campaign. After eight months of war, Ukrainian villagers living near the front lines are preparing for their next battle, a winter with no gas or electricity. As Russia targets Ukraine's energy infrastructure, Ukrainians are finding ways to cope. After eight months of war, residents in the Ukrainian village of Huliayapola are preparing for their next battle, the approaching winter. Kuliayapola is located in the Zaporizhia region, which Russia says it has annexed. The village has been hit by shelling. Russian forces have not occupied the village, but conditions are tough and there is no electricity. Local resident, 60-year-old Natalia, now lives in a basement with some of her neighbours. Although cramped, she says the basement has helped them survive. 
тут сусідка. This is where they sleep. With so much infrastructure hammered by Russian airstrikes, the cold and snow has been long feared in the war. Aid workers have provided wood stoves before winter, when temperatures often plunge far below freezing. Fresh water is provided by the fire brigade or is drawn from a local well. Villagers do have gas, but Natalia says they have to save it. Ukraine's president, Volodymyr Zelensky, has warned that more than 4.5 million are already without power. Energy providers have implemented rolling blackouts to prevent an overload, whilst they race to carry out essential repairs. Serhiy Batalov is a gas repair worker. He has been carrying out works in a village located around three miles from the Kherson front line. Residents in the village say they had no gas for around three months. We work under different conditions, including under shelling, Serhiy says. He just tries to do it as fast and as efficiently as he can. Soldiers from NATO countries are wrapping up in military drills in central Romania. U.S. forces participated. It's part of Justice Sword exercises that started October 27th and will end on Friday. Romanian, U.S., Dutch, and French forces participated in the drills. Around 1,200 soldiers were involved and conducted operations using armored personnel carriers, tanks, heavy cannons, missiles, and drones. Romania has been a NATO member since 2004. A land force of up to 4,000 troops led by France is present in Romania. The head of NATO pledged to defend the country last month when Romania's prime minister visited NATO's headquarters. The NATO allies stepped up military attention to its eastern flank in response to Russia's war in Ukraine. And over in France, metro workers in Paris are on strike, causing serious travel disruptions to commuters and visitors. A third of subway lines are completely closed, and most other lines were working only at peak hours. The Paris public transit system has around 12 million daily users. The public transport operator is urging people to work from home or postpone their trips. The CGT union has called on workers nationwide to walk off the job. They are pushing for higher wages and protesting against planned pension reforms. But other unions have not joined in. Similar calls over the past weeks failed to gather much traction. The walkout comes in a tense political climate and amid spiraling inflation. Tens of thousands of British nurses will go on strike for the first time over demands for better pay. This as Prime Minister Rishi Sunak is already feeling the pressure of an economic crisis. The Royal College of Nurses, or RCN, says that nurses at the majority of state-run National Health Service hospitals have voted to strike. The action threatens major disruption in an already strained healthcare system. NHS nurses have seen their salaries cut by up to 20% in real terms over the last 10 years. The strike will come as the NHS faces its worst-ever staffing crisis while it is still recovering from the hit to services during the COVID pandemic. The National Health Service is now dealing with a record 7 million patients on waiting lists for hospital treatment. Accident and emergency departments are also under strain. And just ahead, art dealers from around the world gather at the Louvre in France. Countless ancient treasures are on display from countries around the world. And in France, craftsmen are cleaning the windows of the Notre Dame Cathedral. The delicate operation is the latest step after a fire damaged the landmark in 2019. Stay tuned for more on that when we return.
Welcome back. Dozens of art dealers from around the world are gathering at the Louvre for an art fair showcasing the beauty, elegance, and grace of art pieces from antiquity to the present day. NTD's France correspondent David Vives sent us this story. The Art Fair Fine Arts Paris and La Biennale opened on Wednesday in Paris. It features over 80 exhibitors coming from Europe, including Italy and Great Britain, as well from across the world. The VIP opening day was a success, according to the organizers. So we're happy to have a normal fair, if we can say, a, a fair without any uh, restrictions. And uh, we can see that um, dealers and also uh, uh, collectors, amateurs, all the visitors are very happy to, to be back. The fair showcases original creations rarely seen by the public, such as this beautiful floating set tiara made from precious stone by Chinese craftswoman Jay Feng. But most of the pieces on display date back several centuries, such as these Buddhas and Bodhisattvas sculptures at the Gallery Hyoko booth. This is a major piece of our exhibition, a seeded Maitreya, a Bodhisattva from the Gandhara region of India, dating from the 2nd to 3rd century AD. The Gandhara style is a style that mixes Greek art and the Buddhist iconography from India. So we find a muscular body, big drapes, and a bun from the Greek style, as well as a moustache and jewelry that represent the Indian art. This London art dealer specializes in vintage maps, like this rare medieval calendar used by monks to count the days, or these two Chinese maps depicting the sky and the earth. Um, this one, the celestial one, is based actually on a 1247 stele that still exists in Suchao, um, which uh, was built slightly differently, it had the circular sky at the top and then the text at the bottom. This one was updated during the Qing time by the Qing scholars. Um, and it also explains the birth of the universe and how um, the, the, the Qing rulers were rightfully ruling the kingdom. The price tag on these pieces ranged from 3000 to several hundred thousand dollars, depending on the rarity, the age and the state of conservation. These sculptures at this Italian gallery cost about $180,000 each. But as this art dealer told us, Behind each piece, there's the passion and the faith of a craftsman, one need to understand to fully appreciate its beauty. This booth is showcasing 19th century masterpieces made from gold with some items reflecting the luxury of French art during Napoleon's time. Here we have a clock of perfect execution, that is to say, a well-defined balance, beautiful proportions and engraving as we like it, with a lot of details, a lot of texture and really a know-how that perfectly illustrates the French craftsmanship of the 18th century. Léage says his profession combines business with passion. There's a bit of a passion, a passion for objects. Well, yes, of course, we buy. Our job is to find objects that we will present to our customers, and we have several criteria. We have the criteria of rarity, authenticity, and beauty. We buy with a heart like a customer. When they buy something, it's often, very often, on a whim. So we work in the same way. We sort out what is the most beautiful, what is the most rare, and, of course, what is authentic. And then there is our taste. Each dealer has a different taste, and 
Indeed, as an antique dealer, we are happy to offer our selections. The art fair at the Carousel du Louvre will run until November 13th. David Gives, NTD News, Paris. The Notre Dame Cathedral in Paris is getting a window washing. NTD's Andrew Thomas has the latest on the efforts to restore the building after the 2019 fire. Eight glass manufacturers from France have begun the painstaking operation to clean and restore 39 windows in the medieval cathedral. A master glassmaker explains the importance of the stained glass. Master glassmakers of every age engaged in creating a secret space through light. In the Middle Ages, Silesian friar Vitello thought of stained glass windows as a medium that transformed physical light into divine light. So stained glass windows are here to sculpt the light of a cathedral and accompany its architecture. The glass cleaning process involves gently rubbing the surface with cotton soaked in water and ethanol. It's a delicate and repetitive process, but it's the safest way to clean grime without damaging the window. This is a major cleaning phase to wash off both the dirt from the fire and the dirt resulting from human breath, as well as candy dirt. So you can put the windows back into place and restore full brightness to Notre Dame. The cathedral has been closed for restoration since April 2019, after a fire gutted its roof and sent the spire crashing down. The aim is to reopen the cathedral by 2024, when France hosts the Olympic Games. With Notre Dame, there is really a feeling that we are all working together, regardless of the craft, in a great procession that is organized, thanks to very precise and complicated logistics in order to each group to do its part at a given time. For example, next week we will receive new bay windows, then they will go back to the warehouse until we work on them again at a later stage. The workshop of Cologne Cathedral in Germany is lending a hand to France. They're restoring the stained glass in four high windows. Notre Dame's stained glass windows were designed by architect Eugène Violet Leduc. He also designed the 315-foot spire. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. Italian authorities have discovered two dozen well-preserved bronze statues in an ancient thermal spring. They're calling it one of the most significant finds ever in the Mediterranean. The statues are estimated to be 2,300 years old and were used to adorn a sanctuary before they were immersed in thermal waters in a kind of ritual. Experts say the find will rewrite history by shedding new light on the end of the Etruscan civilization and the expansion of the Roman Empire. This period was marked by war and conflict, and yet the bronze statues show evidence that Etruscan and Roman families prayed together with the statues bearing both Etruscan and Latin inscriptions. The pieces were discovered in a hilltop town about 100 miles north of Rome as part of an archaeological dig among ancient ruins. The Italian Culture Ministry announced the construction of a new museum in the area to house the statues. And coming up, a team of Sydney scientists work with an Australian brewery to make the process as efficient as possible. Bars around Sydney are already showing interest. Details to come on MTD News Today. Scientists are teaming up with an Australian brewery to create a smart and sustainable pint. NTD's Andrew Thomas has the details on the brainy brewing process. 
Young Henry's Brewery is working with researchers from University Technology Sydney on a digital brewing process. The experiments aim to recover energy lost during boiling. To fully utilize those uh, raw ingredients, one needs to more water, time and energy for reprocessing. So you see that uh, really precise automation is the key to sustainable industry. According to researchers, the breweries in the study could save between 15 and 130 tons of greenhouse gases annually. If you want to reduce water usage, if you want to maximize um, the amount of heat, for example, that you recover, if you want to try to brew a beer that's maybe carbon neutral or carbon negative, um, you can look at ways to do that with, with the information that we, that we gather. Richard Adamson is the co-founder of Young Henry's. He says the computerized processes at his brewery are the next revolution in manufacturing, often described as Industry 4.0. It's all about adopting computers, automation, and machine learning. There's a lot of talk about Industry 4.0, and that really means integrating things like AI and the Internet of Things and getting these machines talking to each other uh, to reduce the, the, the sort of mundane tasks, I guess, that, that people have to do, but also to provide um, the operators with more data so they can do their job more efficiently. The new brewing method is still being perfected, but bars around Sydney are already showing interest. Hopefully it makes us sell more beer. I think it's always good when any larger company is trying to lead in an economic way. I think it's, it's going to be beneficial for everyone. Young Henry's is also looking into biogases, co-generated electricity, and extending their current use of solar energy. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. Is having a sharp brain in youth and in the senior years as simple as eating the right foods? And are these foods easy to get? Here's Gina Marie who brings us Strong Mind and Body. Who benefits from better brain health? Everyone, of course. But today we will look at two groups, students and seniors. Our brain functions include cognitive, sensory, social-emotional, behavioral and motor domains. This allows people to realize their full potential over the course of their lives. Students are our future. They need assistance to stay in school and thrive academically. Seniors spent decades accumulating experience and wisdom. Their brains need preserving and maintenance. So what do researchers recommend we eat? They've identified the best foods that deliver quality and quantity of nutrients. Almonds. Almonds are great for memory boost. They increase memory and message transmission. Avocados. Avocados contain monounsaturated fats at lower blood pressure. Hypertension has been linked to poor health. Beets. Beets promote better blood flow to the brain thanks to nitrates. Their nutrients improve memory and decision-making. Blueberries. Blueberries are packed with anthocyanins. These are plant compounds that deliver antioxidant and anti-inflammatory benefits. They help to prevent neurodegenerative diseases. Eggs. Eggs contain choline, tiny nutrients for neurotransmission involving memory and mood. They are also rich in B vitamins and play a significant role in brain health. Green tea. Multiple nutrients in green tea helps to promote mental decline, improve brain performance, memory and the ability to focus and stay alert. Salmon. 
oily fish contain omega-3 fatty acids necessary for preventing depression and learning problems. Turmeric. Turmeric contains curcumin, which promotes growth of new brain cells and improves mood. It also helps with better memory and removes anxiety and depression. And finally, walnuts. Walnuts contain omega-3 fatty acids, which are healthy fats for the brain. They also have vitamin E, which helps to prevent deterioration of cognitive abilities. A young United States World Cup squad is heading to Qatar to compete and is determined to show they belong on soccer's biggest stage after failing to qualify in 2018. But little has gone as hoped for the Americans ahead of their World Cup opener. They are set to play against Wales on November 21st, but injuries have plagued their squad. They failed to record a shot on goal on one warm-up match, a 2-0 defeat by Japan in September. Days later, the far lower-ranked Saudi Arabia held them to a 0-0 draw. However, there was no lack of vigor among American fans on Wednesday, where VIPs packed into a New York City concert hall to name members of the next national team. The next World Cup after Qatar will be hosted in the U.S., Canada, and Mexico, so U.S. soccer is eager to drum up enthusiasm among a population more interested in basketball, baseball, and football. A Brazilian skateboarder pulls off a spectacular stunt at about 10,000 feet above the ground, just proving that the sky really is the limit. The performer slid down a rail with her skateboard to leave the plane in dramatic fashion, but rest assured, she was wearing a parachute. The ambitious athlete is Letitia Buffoni of San Paulo, a six-time X Games medalist. She made more than 100 jumps to prepare for the stunt. The plane is from the Fast and Furious films. For this project, it was filled with over 50 people from the production and filming crew, and the cameraman has a story himself. He jumped with Tom Cruise in Mission Impossible Fallout. The project also used the same Panavision camera lens that director Quentin Tarantino shoots his films with. And that's all for today's program. We're really glad to have you with us. Please send us an email if you'd like to tell us something. We're going to put it on screen. For podcasters, that's news.today at ntd.com. I'm Kevin Hogan, NTD News, New York City.